Before 1973, back in those prehistoric days that only a few of you can remember here, before that uh, great amusement park, Kings Island, existed, we had another place here in Cincinnati where we used to have fun, Coney Island. Who's been to Coney Island? Not the new one, the old one, you know, where they had all the stuff that you could die on if you wrote it just wrong, right? Some of you are old enough, by the way, that you rode a steamship from Cincinnati to Coney Island to get there, right? Anybody? It's good you can still get your arms up, guys. <laughs> I uh, can remember every year on the final day of school, whether you had passed or failed, you got to go to Kings or Coney Island. And uh, we would think about that for at least the last two months of school, what we were going to ride, who we were going to ride with, who we would, uh, what we would eat, uh, all those kind of things. You know, we were planning it out. And sixth grade, the big day came. We got there, and my parents had made the mistake of giving me 20 bucks. A lot of money in those days. And I took that $20 and began, and began to buy food. I, you know, my breakfast was wearing thin by the time I got there. I bought a, a foot-long Coney dog, Chili Coney. I bought some nachos. I bought an elephant ear. Remember those? I like those, don't you? I like anything that includes sugar and cinnamon on dough. Can't find fault with that. And I probably ate a couple more things that I can't remember. Rode a few rides and then took the challenge. Somebody dared me to ride an apparatus of death called the rotor. Anybody remember the rotor? Now, it was based on a very unusual premise. You would climb up some stairs, and it was a circular uh, terror chamber and probably would hold about 30 people, and you'd go off the platform into your particular little cage. It'd be a cage in front of you and a floor underneath you, and it would start to spin. It was on this day that I learned something that has been true for the rest of my life. If I ride something that goes in a circle, I'm going to get sick. If this pulpit started to spin now, you could see it in action. So I, I get strapped into the cage. There, it's a full ride. There are 30 others or so on there with me. And it starts to spin. And it keeps spinning. And I began to shout in a loud voice, Let me out of here! <laughs> but instead of them letting me out of there, it seemed to spin even faster. Not only was it spinning, but the floor was dropping. We were spinning so hard that we were glued to the wall, basically. I was still screaming. And in the midst of one of those screams, what I had eaten, what I had eaten was dispatched from my body. 
Not just a little, not just a little bit of it, all of it. Now, that's bad enough, right? That's bad enough. But here's what happens. When you're spinning at that force, what is dispatched from your body goes out to about right here and then comes back. And I was spinning, so it began to make contact with all those who had joined me on the ride. And some of those people began to add to the calamity as they got sick. They had to close it down and clean it up afterwards, just let me tell you that. And that was kind of the end of the day for me. Now, I tell you that story not to gross you out. Thanks for putting that up there, Pete. I tell you that story to tell you this, is that sometimes, in my mind, it's a pretty good picture of life. We get somewhere where we have no business going. We overdo it. We eat, drink, party, whatever, to excess. And then the consequences start to fly. Not only do they fly back in your face, they fly back in the face of those who are in your company. The easiest thing in the world to get in is a mess. Now, I hope that your mess has been less graphic than my mess, but I dare say as you sit here today and you think about where you are in life right now, you can look back in your past and you can identify some messes that you've waded through, some troubles that you've walked through, some heartache that you've experienced. Or maybe as you sit here right now and you, you think about it, you say, Brother Todd, if I'm honest, life's pretty messy right now. Some things going on that I got no control over. Maybe it's an addiction problem. Sometimes addiction grabs and grips your soul, your spirit, and and there is absolutely nothing, it seems, that will allow you to shake free from it. Maybe it's a financial problem. you're, You're here today, and you would have liked to give in, but you really don't think you can. You're wondering how you're going to get through the rest of this month and get the bills paid off. You're just consumed and concerned with worry and anxiety, even after I told you last week never to worry again. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe every day turns into a fight around your house. and There are folks in your family that don't get along. There are people who are crazy enough they don't even like you. Maybe your husband isn't what he ought to be and you've had about enough, or your wife isn't what you ought to be, and you've had about enough. You know, it can be a a relationship problem, a mess. It could be any number of things. But you realize as you attempt to follow him, as you attempt just to get through the day, that the struggle is consuming you, and the mess is overwhelming you. The easiest thing in the world is to get into a mess.
But maybe the most difficult thing in the world is to get out. Ninety years after Christ had ascended into heaven, the world was in chaos. And Christians and believers and Christ followers were wondering who was in charge, who was in control. The Apostle Paul had been martyred. Disciple Peter, crucified. John himself, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. It was a time of uncertainty, a time of mystery and chaos, and those who had given their hearts and lives for Jesus were wondering when the mess would come to an end. The very last book in our New Testament was given to John about that time in prison on the Isle of Patmos in exile. And he wrote that book which certainly contains lots of information about end times, about what it's going to look when God comes and claims the world as his own. There's all sorts of information, and even the wisest scholars disagree about exactly how it's going to happen. And if you read the book of Revelation, and all you're trying to do is figure out what it's going to look like when God comes back, then you're reading it for the wrong reason. Because the book is literally meant as an encouragement for those who are wondering who's in control, for those whose lives are in a mess, for those who are saying, is this all there is? Is the world going to destroy and consume me? Where's God? The very first verse in the book of Revelation says this, This revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He's given this word to his servant, John. So understand this. The title of the book gives you all you need to know about what's important, a revelation a look into who God really is, the unveiling of Jesus. So here's the bottom line for what we're going to talk about today. Life's in a mess, or it's been in a mess, or it's going to be in a mess, because no one can avoid messes. Struggling, worries, troubles, broke, life in a mess, start to feel like you're not worth much. Start to feel like you failed God. Start to feel like you failed your family and friends. Start to feel like a loser. Life's in a mess. Jesus comes on the scene and turns the mess into a victory. Turns the struggle into a place where God can work. Turns your brokenness into wholeness. The mess becomes a victory. We have a video of some folks who were kind enough to come and just share their heart about a mess or a, that they were in or still in. And as you watch this video, I want you to think not about their mess, but about the one you may be in, the trouble you may be facing. And I want you to hear how God worked in their lives.
first step in moving from that messy place in life to where you can get to a place and claim victory is coming to an understanding, a realization of who Jesus really is. You recognize him for exactly who he is and what he can do, the power that is his. In, in, in Revelation, it talks about who he really is. And I want you to focus on these titles. Uh, in, in verse 4, it says, He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He's eternal, everlasting. Power is never-ending. Jesus Christ was the faithful witness in verse 5, the firstborn from the dead, the one who had resurrection power, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Recognize who Jesus really is. Know his power. Know that he can take that which is bad and turn it into something positive. Of all of those terms that, that, that John used as he described God, as he described the Son, the one that just resonates so clearly with me, he's the ruler of the kings of the world. Now, we kind of have folks, uh, I know because some of you talk to me about staying up for the royal wedding and all of that gibberish, that kind of follow the, the royals. And I uh, think it would be a pretty good thing to be a king or a queen or a priest or, or a prince is what I wanted to say. But in reality, the kings of our world today, uh, the power that they have is paltry as compared with the kings in ancient times and Jesus' time. If you were a king in Jesus' day, you were in absolute control of the country. You were in control of the wealth, the taxes, the land. You made every choice, every decision. All power was yours. And so when John wrote, Jesus is the ruler over all of the kings of the world, he was describing to the folks in those days something that would be almost incredible or impossible to believe. It was matchless, overwhelming power. Kind of like being a preacher, right? What he was saying is that there's nothing beyond his grasp, his power. Remember, it was an encouragement to those who were giving up, to those who were struggling, to those who were caught in a quagmire of a mess. He's the ruler. His power is matchless recognize who he really is. And the truth is that power's never changed. That which you can't change in your life, he can. That which you can't forgive, he can. That which you struggle with is simple to him. Realize who he really is. Number two, we can share in his victory. Understand that his power is yours. Understand that what is to come, you will share in. Understand that the victory, ultimately, that Jesus will claim, and the victories he claims every day now, are yours. Now, before you can believe that you can tap into that kind of power, that 
Someone in the high and heavenlies loves you and understands you and wants to pour his spirit into you. You've got to see some things differently. First is this, do you really believe you've been forgiven? We start with a premise that all of us need that, right? Amen? That there are things in our life that have served as barriers and obstacles. There are times that we've got into messes. There are times that we have fallen short of what we should be. And as a result of the culmination and and just the building of sin in our life, there are many of us who who really can't understand the uh, enormity of God's forgiveness. And so you walk through life feeling the, the burden of guilt and shame, and you walk through life looking at yourself as a loser. Do you really believe? Look at me. Do you really believe that God's forgiven you? You really believe He saved you? You know, I know folks who've been in church all of their lives who were baptized at a young age, who came to a knowledge of Christ, and they'll say, I'm not really sure I'm saved. Others of you are sitting here today, and if I were to ask you, are you headed to heaven? Has God forgiven you, loved you, saved you? You'd say, I hope He has. I, I, I want that, but I'm not sure. I don't know if anything in my life has really changed. I'm not really sure where I'm going to spend eternity. You can never live a victorious life. You can never live a life that will allow you to overcome the multitude of messes that you're going to get in if you don't know the saving power of Christ. You can never share in Christ's victory. You'll live in fear. Fear of what the world may bring, fear of death, fear of eternity, and there's no victory in fear, is there? Do you really believe that God has saved you? Let me ask you a question. How many of you got picked on when you were a kid? And the rest of you were the bullies, right? I see you. I know where you're at. Some of y'all still pick on me. And, you know, the fact is this. I mean, let's just be honest. Somewhere along the way, we've been labeled, haven't we? May have been as early as childhood or when we were teenagers or maybe when we were at college or when we got into the workforce, but there was somebody there who, who looked at you and, and, and made you feel less than good about yourself. Maybe your, your spouse does that to you now. My kids make fun of me. And, and, and you pick up labels, don't you? Loser idiot, skank, getting personal now, right? You pick up labels, and you can sort of hold on to them, don't you? There are not many folks who uh, would fall into the category of me I am a divorced pastor. Sometimes when I walk into meetings with other pastors, I see them whispering. They don't know that my life's better than theirs. (laughs) 
but you feel that label that you've gotten maybe by not any choice of your own. And, 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 and you start to think that you are who they say you are. What Jesus would say to you is that's not true at all. You're who God says you are. You are who God says you are. That's a great big difference, isn't it? You know, most of the people that have labeled me are far less than God. Far less than God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, it, it, in chapter 2, uh, John begins to send letters to uh, individual churches. And the first church he talks to is the church at Pergamum. And here's what he says to them. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Here's what the Spirit has to say to you. To the one who is victorious, to the one who follows Jesus and claims the victory of Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, that's an interesting concept. You ever go to somebody's house and, and like, you're the special guest, and after they send the others home, they break out the good stuff? You know, the... Now, don't let, you know, let me get to what I'm going to say before you jump to conclusions. They break out the coconut pie where they fed everybody else chocolate, right? The hidden manna, the good stuff reserved not for the losers, but for the winners. I will also give that person, that victorious person, a white stone. The white stone of victory with their name written on it. People of Pergamum were known exactly what John was talking about because an athlete who won a victory or, or someone who rose above uh, a circumstance was given by the dignitaries a white stone, not a gold medal, a white stone. And that stone would have their name on it, and they would carry that stone around with them because that stone would open doors that they wouldn't have been able to walk through before. It would carry respect that they'd never had before. It would signify, it would signify their victory. I want this stone to play a role in my death one day. One day when I'm 107, by the way. Now you're saying, which one of us gets to hit you over the head with it, right? I want you to drop a white stone in the casket with me. I don't care where you drop it at that point. Because I want to go away victorious. I want to know that my hope is in heaven. My salvation is sure and true. And when you look down into my casket... Only a few of you will make it that long, by the way. When you look down into my casket and you see this stone, you'll know that I'm one of his. And I'm sharing in his victory. Number three, I want you to look forward to his return. Uh, let me read this verse to you because it, it gets at what is going to happen on that day. Look He's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who've pierced him, even those who killed him, denied him, walked away from him, and all the people 
on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. As the years have gone by since Jesus ascended into heaven, many, many people have become negligent about the idea that he'll come back. We don't really understand what Jesus meant when he said soon. Soon may be 2,000 years. It may be 4,000. All I know is that it's a promise of God that he's going to return. And that when he does return, the world will be set right. All of those things that are messes in our life will be dissipated. All of this power and, and the stranglehold that Satan had been allowed will come to an end. Everyone will know, the Scripture says. Everyone will see. Everyone will know that he's the King of kings, that he's the Lord of lords. You know, the first time Jesus came in the obscurity of Bethlehem, this time he'll ride through the sky and every eye will see. The first time he came as a lamb, this time he'll come as a lion. The first time Jesus came, he came riding a humble donkey into Jerusalem. This time he'll ride the white horse of judgment and everyone will bow. Everyone will bow. The first time Jesus came, he came to serve. This time, he comes to conquer. The first time, he allowed man to have their way with him. This time, it'll be his way with us. The first time Jesus came, he came and allowed himself to be crucified. This time, those who've denied him, They'll perish, and not him. You see, it'll be a day of great victory. It'll be a time when you and I come to realize that everything we suffered, that every mess, that every struggle, that every heartache could be swallowed up in the victory that is ours as Jesus. So whether you close your eyes in death here and they place you in a casket, in a vault, in the ground, boy, they lock you up tight, don't they? I want to be buried facing the east, right? You know why? That's where he's coming from. He's coming from Florence. I want to face that way. I want a pop-top lid on my casket, too. I don't want one of those things that's bolted down. I want to be able to hit a button and jump right out. I want to be ahead of you all when he comes back. I don't want to miss a thing because it's a great day of victory. And every label, It'll be gone. We'll be champions and conquerors. It's almost been 10 years now, but it seems like yesterday that I lost my dad. Many of you, because he spent a good portion of his ministry in, in Hebron, uh, know him or know of him. And uh, 
I, I've been with people and watched them breathe their last a hundred times or more. When it's your dad, it's different. He had cancer. We, we knew that that day would come. Didn't know it would come that quickly. We were given the privilege that so many don't have of, 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 of being with him for a few days, knowing that it was coming and yet him remaining lucid. And so we had a chance to talk, say goodbye. He called everybody he'd had anything to do with all of his life in to give him a talking to. But he spent most of his time on me. And I'm not going to go into everything we said, but let me tell you what seemed to be his final encouragement to me. He said, son, I, uh, I'm proud of you. And I love you. Love you the first time I saw you. And I love you more now. You're blessed with children. I want you to take care of them and love them like I've loved you. I want you to take care of your mama for me because I won't be there to do that. And he said, I know this is a hard day. It's a tough time. And it seems like an end. It seems like a loss but it's not. It's a victory. It's everything that I've lived for. And you'll see me again someday. He had more confidence in my salvation than I did. You'll see me again someday. And we'll never be apart from each other again. With perfect clarity, I realized what he was saying. The real winners in life, those folks who, who really know what matters, understand that it's about your relationship with Jesus. When it comes to that point, it's all that's left. It's about your relationship with those people who love you enough to gather around your bed at that time. The people you have shared life with and invested your life in and who've learned faith from you. And nothing else matters. Not how much money's in your checkbook, not your retirement fund not what you have and what you own, not some silly mess your life's been in. What matters is that in Jesus, the victory is yours. And you can pass that faith to those who follow you. I don't know how to encourage you 
any more strongly. If it's a mess, if it's a struggle, if it's sin, if it's a burden, if you're lost, that's not who you really are. God says, follow me out of that place to a place of victory. That's who you are. That's what matters. Because what happened that day in January of 2005 in our family's life, in my dad's life, happens every day. It'll happen in your life. Will you lose or will you win? The distinction there is Jesus Christ. Claim victory. Claim victory. Claim victory this morning. Claim victory. Pray with me. Father, you ask us to follow you. Follow you to some tough places to some difficult choices even. But this one's easy. None of us want to miss heaven. None of us want to miss out on reunion with those we've known and loved. None of us want to go through life wondering and worrying and anxious and not sure about our faith. None of us wants to be a loser. This choice is easy. And yet, Father, so many of us refuse and rebel. There are folks sitting here right now that aren't sure about their faith and their salvation or their forgiveness. They're not sure that they really ever trusted you. Father, that has to be happening today. It has to be that most important decision is the only chance we have of real victory. And so I pray, Father, that your spirit would move in this place, that we'd see the truth, that we would admit our need, we'd lay down our pride and our rebellion, and we'd come running to you. We'd claim victory. In your name.